Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. Hip-hop is 50. It was like so many different things at once. It wasn't just hearing the music. It was the clothing, it was the art. It was, it was like a totally different cultural shift. It's black, it's white, it's gay, it's straight. It's just part of the fabric right now. Hip-hop still wants to be connected to the street, but it still wants to be a part of this kind of aspirational culture. Hip-hop was going on in, in, the, in the rubble, in the ruins of the hoods, and seeing such a, an amazing flower flourish is unbelievable. But the irony is just is incredible. Of all the subcultures that we're exploring in this series, hip-hop is perhaps the one that has now become the largest influence on contemporary pop culture. However, right from its beginnings in the Bronx in New York City in the 1970s, hip-hop has had a fraught relationship with the mainstream. From record labels to the media, politics to fashion brands, it's taken half a century for hip-hop to get paid in full. But let's start at the beginning. I spoke to hip-hop head and cultural curator Kish Kash about the unique musical and cultural clash which propelled the sound out from the five boroughs. Hip-hop was mad because you had the disco influence, but then Bambata came through with the electro, right? And he took from Kraftwerk, these, ger- these four German dudes, right? And he just made some mad space music, heavily influenced um, in style by Clinton, George Clinton, you know, and that whole expressive look like that, that entailed. Um, and the vibrancy of New York as well and the different sort of things that were going on, the gang culture over there. You know, New York was like a, a war-torn city and people rising up out of that to make something beautiful because they wanted to make, you know, they wanted to make light of their lives. You know, they wanted to bring something positive in. It was within this melting pot that the founding elements of hip-hop were formed. Aisha Durham is a professor at the University of South Florida and helped curate the Smithsonian's seminal anthology of hip-hop and rap. When we talk about hip-hop today, it means something very different than when we were talking about it 50 years ago. We weren't talking about hip-hop as a kind of unified culture. In fact, we point to Cool Heart, a Caribbean immigrant himself, hosting a party that was advertised by Cool Heart's sister. And this is where we have the elements, whether it's DJing, graffiti writing in terms of promoting MCing or what we would call later rapping. And even dancing, b-boying, or breaking. What powered this creative eruption is the camaraderie and community of New York's immigrant population. We are also talking about a generation, a first generation of people who are growing up in the United States, again, whether born in the United States or through immigration, particularly through the Caribbean, because they helped to shape what we know in the United States as hip hop and then other iterations in places like uh, the UK, where you have grime and jungle. That kind of migration of people helps to create that what we would call a subculture. I think one of the, the major things that made hip hop spread was the ability for, say, for instance, the DJ to share records that came from 
various cultures, right? Dr. Marquise McFerguson lectures on hip-hop and cultural identity at Florida Atlantic University. You could be at the party listening to a breakbeat from a James Brown record, and the next thing you know, they could uh, seamlessly transition into a reggae record. And so I believe it was the blending together of cultures that made hip-hop Another thing that made really made hip hop spread was they talked about, say, for instance, uh, conditions and the social climate. I'm thinking about uh, the, the verse of uh, broken glass everywhere. Like, you know, this ideal of talking about what was going on in the, in the city. You had the, the hip hop was going on in, in, the, in the rubble, in the ruins of the hoods. People setting up, plugging into the, jacking in into the lamppost or whatever, and, and you're running a line from that to power the sound systems. Incredible inventiveness going on here. You know, having that ability to think beyond the scope is fantastic. The, this, the ultimate irony is, considering where hip hop is and sneaker culture is right now, billions of pounds, dollars, right? The setting. The, the, the actual setting, the foundation, was in the most disparate surroundings. Hip-hop's power to represent was evident right from the start. This new sound resonated worldwide, already inspiring the torchbearers of tomorrow. DJ Semtex has been at the centre of the UK hip-hop scene for two decades and recalls how it spoke to him as a young person thousands of miles away in the English city of Manchester. The sounds and everything, it was like, it, it perfectly matched the urban living experience. You know, if you're on a bus going to the city centre, you, you're going through different areas which are decrepit, which are fucked, which have got houses that have been abandoned. And even though they made their music in America and they made it in New York, it still relates to people worldwide because those environments exist, you know, that, that we live near. And there's certain tracks that stick with me and there's certain things that register with me. Public Enemy was one of them groups because hearing it on the radio, it that was before sort of videos, that was before sort of visuals, that was before sort of artwork and before sort of live on stage. That was a totally different experience. You see Terminator X on stage, like Massive X, like as a DJ stand, you had the African medallion and the high top and all of that. I wanted all of that. I wanted all of that. I wanted the medallions. I wanted the haircut. I wanted the tracksuit. I wanted to be on stage DJing, all of that. Hip-hop came from the streets of the Bronx, but it wasn't long before the downtown art scene took notice. Before they were household names, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Futura and Keith Haring were taking art from the streets into white-walled galleries. It's hard to imagine hip-hop, or downtown New York for that matter, without picturing the graffiti that came with it. When you've got the backdrop in 70s New York, people spraying up, you know, getting their name up and, you know, getting fame from that and just, you know, seeing, wow, I can aspire to do something. And, I, you know, films are eventually made. You know, you've got Wildstyle, then you've got Beat Street and then you've got Breaking. Um, all these things, you've got Malcolm McLaren in the mix bringing that New York art crowd to go, hey, check this out. This is the new thing. Then you've got people who are classified as graffiti artists but really weren't. But you've got Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, the whole Studio 54 backdrop. You know, your Grace Jones, we have Warhols. But then you had, I think, I think the New York City Breakers might have been hanging out there or Crazy Legs as a young kid hanging out there and all this kind of stuff. And the graffiti artists, you know, whatever. It was just like a, a crazy melting pot. 
hip-hop was beginning to cross over into other parts of culture, even onto the catwalks with a strong visual style. But the hip-hop look can't be defined as one monolithic style. There were the militant looks such as Semtex's favourite public enemy, the rock star peacocking of Grandmaster Flash, and the break-ready tracksuits of b-boy culture. One man in particular was mixing it up right from the start, with an irreverent style that still inspires designers today. His name is Dapper Dan. Fashion gives me the opportunity to talk about things that they should know and where it came from, you know? I'm not into fashion to dress bodies. I'm into fashion to dress minds. My message ultimately be, listen, hip-hop is evolving now, you know? You got to understand where it came from. It's transformative. That's the key. It's transformative. Bitch, please call me Nana. I don't want to win the war. Bitch, please call me Nana. I don't want to win the war. Dapper Dan's story is the story of hip-hop itself. Here, he tells us about his early years in 1950s Harlem. I grew up among the poorest of the poor in East Harlem. And um, that's what generated my um, enthusiasm and desire for clothes. The reason being is like, although I was in the poorest neighborhood, my first experience was when you got dressed up and you had nice clothes and you went somewhere else, nobody knew where you lived or how you was living. So my first experience with uh, dressing and the transformative power of Clothing took place when I was very, very young. All of us had basically either a little hole or a big hole in our shoes. And I came home and I was talking to my mother, explaining to her that my feet was killing me. And before my mother could even say something, my brother said, don't worry, Ma. He said, come on. You know, the family called me Danny Boy. He said, come on. My brother took me in Goodwills. You know, you familiar with Goodwills? Our Macy's. We went to the shoe rack. You say, you see any shoes you rack? I said, yeah, those over there, man. They were split-toe shoes, like a mahogany color with tassels. And I tried them on. You say, how do they feel? I said, they fit. They feel good. He said, okay, put your shoes in the rack. I put my shoes in the rack. And he said, let's go. And that was my first experience with having, like, some really super sharp shoes. We couldn't pay for it, so we had to walk out. So that's what it was like. Um, all my clothes I got were hand-me-downs until I was old enough to uh, take to the streets and create money for a wardrobe for myself. Danny Boy earned his now-famous moniker after displaying the street-hustling skills of a local gangster. Once I got to the age where I was a proficient hustler, then I started taking a bigger interest in clothes. And what I noticed, the early influences were the gangsters, the criminals in Harlem. And that's the Italian ones as well as the African-American ones, and, the, and we had the Latino ones, all of them, you know. But basically it started with the uh, first with the Italians because they had the money, you know. Then African-Americans, as they began to take over the streets, the hustles in the streets, and they started making money, then they, they developed their own sense of style. Street fashion, where a lot of people are not familiar with street fashion, actually started from black ballrooms in Harlem. And the first thing to come out of that was the zoot suit. So the early influences 
for a fashion. This was the beginning of Dap's music connection, a relationship that would have a huge influence on hip-hop and street style to this day. But it was another influence that would play a pivotal role in his work as a designer. As he moved away from hustling, Dapadan took a trip to Africa, which would change his life. So now in 1973, it's the rumble in the jungle, Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman. You know, Muhammad Ali, he's standing up to America. George Foreman just won the Olympic title and he's walking around the ring with an American flag. Stokely Carmichael's is in Africa at the same time with Miriam McKeever, and they're traveling from country to country, and I'm on the plane with them, and I'm witnessing all this, all this revolutionary spirit. So I visit three countries this time. Zaire, then to Lagos, and to Liberia. Now, while I'm in Liberia, I decided, I said, you know what? I want to get some artifacts to take back with me. And while I'm at the, the market getting the artifacts, the guy who I'm buying it from, the African who I'm buying it from, I said, I love all these artifacts. He said, I love your clothes. I said, you want to trade? He said, yeah. I run up and I go in the upstairs, back to the hotel, and I bring all my luggage. And I exchange all my luggage for artifacts. I got them throughout the house, as well as to get him to make me a garment. So the garments that I have made is the sensibility of African-American with African flavors. So when I come back, I didn't even realize in my head at that time, but that was the birth of Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan fused these influences of street sensibility, gangster money, and Stokely Carmichael's black power to create a style which would influence hip-hop for generations. With big fur coats and Gucci and Louis Vuitton monograms, Dap designed luxurious jackets, suits, hats, and even car upholstery all of which came dripping in luxury logos. His style and story, a tension between consumerism and survival, is emblematic of hip-hop culture itself. There's always been a kind of cultural conversation, hybridity happening, where there's an exchange of ideas. That's how we actually create style. That's how we create um, culture from borrowing. Aisha Durham again. Dapper Dan is an interesting story in and of itself. We're talking about hip-hop in terms of subcultural style, making do, taking whatever is available and recreating it from existing objects and creating something new. It wasn't long before the whole of Harlem was queuing for Dapper Dan's wares. Basically, he was making luxury accessible, I should say, to the hood. Here's Kishkash. The hood couldn't walk into a Gucci store, but the thing is, if they did, they wouldn't find anything they really wanted to wear. They liked the logos. They liked the, wow, I look money wearing it, but they didn't find anything that they could wear. So all the D-boys were the ones who really funded, you know, you know, all, all, the, all the gangsters were the ones who came in and spent the money. And it's, and it's what you find, you know, in New York in the 70s and the 80s, you know, the, the, crack, the crack dealers, the drug dealers and all this kind of stuff and the pimps. You know, they, Dapper Dan was kitting them out. In Dapp's own words, the gangster relationship was key to disseminating the luxe look he had pioneered. But I completely catered to, to us, you know, African-Americans and Latinos, because I understood, especially the inner city ones, because, you know, I didn't realize beneficial it was being born in, in Harlem. I, did, I thought every place was had pretty much like Harlem, because in Harlem we had Italians, Jews, Puerto Ricans, blacks, all 
poor and in the same area together. So I had all kind of clients, right? But all gangsters. I had to cater to them the way they like to be catered to. So I was open 24 hours a day, 365 days for 10 years straight. And so the Harlem guys who I was serving, the gangsters, they was going to all the main events throughout the country. And so everybody's seeing them with my clothes. And so that's building my momentum. So the rappers always wanted to look like the gangsters. Whenever you see a rapper with all these diamonds and all these jewels, all that is is nothing but evolution. And I play completely into that. That's who I am. That's who we are. So if one Ralph Lauren polo horse will make you happy, I'll give you hers. If two or three Gs will make you happy, I'll give you an alphabet. A Dapazan garment could often cost just as much as the brands from which he took his iconography. But it was his take on the designer garment which made his work so comfortable. For his customers, it wasn't about the brand itself, but what the brand represented, which was mainly wealth. Whereas some might view these pieces as counterfeit, and in the eyes of the law they were, what Dap did was in the true spirit of hip-hop artistry, adopting status symbols and remixing them, subverting them and sampling them for a group of people who were not considered the demographic for luxury goods. The dynamic still exists in terms of aspiration um, and contestation. Uh, the very kind of caricature or the uh, representation of the pimp is an example of that. On the one hand, it is working within a dark capitalism or underground um, illicit economy At the same time, it's very structured, you know, supporting uh, hierarchies and exploitation. The street was inextricably linked to what was going on. So when the rappers are seeing what's going on, they want to look fresh and fly as well. You know, you couldn't, they knew who, everyone knew who was what, and some even invested in them, you know, so you have that in play. And what he did, it was like, I'm taking that and I'm going to make it better which is what hip-hop was. Hip-hop's taking that little break of that record and making a better record out of it. When Dapazan's brand started going global through his A-list clientele, it wasn't long before his designs attracted a different kind of attention. In 1992, the luxury brands whose logos Dap had adopted started to take notice and then sued him by the end of that year, the famously independent Dap was forced to close his boutique in Harlem. Like you didn't care when, you know, it was just artists within a subculture wearing Dapper Dan. But at the moment that Dapper Dan is now known outside of, you know, a subcultural style, now becomes important and now I want to own his artistry. But Dap's story doesn't end there. Soon, the movement's originators started to take power back for themselves. From Queen Latifah, Eric B. and Rakim, to uh, Big Daddy Kane and the others, Dapper Dan remains one of the most notable um, designers. And they may make counterfeit. It didn't really matter. It was the idea that we, as dispossessed and marginalized poor people, had access. This was not meant for us, but we're going to make it for us. We'll be back with more from the Identity Podcast after this break.
Hip-hop's ability to occupy spaces within multiple cultural spheres at the same time demonstrates its power as an art form. Whether it's uptown and downtown, the upper echelons of the art world and the projects of Brooklyn, designer runways in Paris and knockoffs on Canal Street, it remains true to its ethos the whole way through. When we talk about fashion in terms of hip-hop, we're really talking about style. Here's Aisha Durham. On the one hand, hip-hop still wants to be connected to the street. And by street, we're still talking about working class, but it still wants to be a part of this kind of aspirational culture. But that is really the tension when we see in fashion in terms of hip-hop culture. There's a rejection of and there's a kind of desire. So there's aspiration to wealth and to power. By the 1980s, hip-hop was no longer an underground movement, but was ready to burst into the mainstream. Kish Cash again. The moment when Russell Simmons invited executives from Adidas to come to a Run DMC concert, and then Run DMC go, put your shell toes in the air, put your Adidas in the air, and then drop my, my Adidas, the penny dropped. Yeah, we can do something with this. This is marketing. It's the first moment of marketing a sports product outside of the sports arena. Run DMC got their own line. They got their own line with Adidas. It's crazy to see where it's gone now. Yeah, so I think like with Run DMC, when they come out with the um, the Adidas tracksuit and the, uh, also popularizing the shell toes, the large gold chains. Dr. Marquise McFerguson. I think you can see, say, for instance, you know, uh, this ideal of this, uh, you know, same uniform top and bottom. Uh, and a lot of times, say, for instance, if you were going to have, if it was a Puma Valor suit, of course, you're going to have the matching sneakers. Uh, and you're probably going to, back in that time, probably rocking the uh, Kango uh, hat to, to match. And so I believe it was one of those, those staples, especially early on in hip hop, that uh, kind of this was iconic The functionality and purpose of a look such as the tracksuit made it ideal for rolling off the shelves in big numbers. And given how hip-hop contained multiple stylistic variations within the subculture, it wasn't long before multiple looks proliferated. Here's DJ Semtex. And again, it was about function, right? The reason why people's wearing tracksuits is easy to breakdancing, right? It's, it's cheap as well. It's just, you know, you can rock a few tracksuits, different colours and look like you're balling. And just the arrangement, something as simple as wearing a brim hat and turning it around. And we take that to be just very ordinary today when it really was not ordinary. Given how hip hop contained multiple stylistic variations within its subculture, it wasn't long before distinct and varied looks proliferated. As the 90s got going, there were a lot of acts that switched up the looks and, and the fashion, you know, and you had Public Enemy with black jeans, Raiders jacket, Raiders baseball cap. NWA came out and they overdid that. Like, they over, like, you know, group from LA, LA Raiders hats, jackets, jeans and everything else. Different shoes, though. They were wearing Chuck Taylors. But every region had their own style. Like, so the West Coast had their style and then taking it back to New York in the early 90s. And if you look at Juice, um, the film, which features Tupac and Omar Epps, it was very 
reflective of what everybody was wearing at that time from the East Coast side of things. So it was Carhartt, it was the Timberland boots over baggy jeans and everything else and all of that. Same thing with Timberland boots, very functional. Like in, in New York, the weather, in, I don't know if you've been to New York at Christmas time, it's, it's, it is almost like polar conditions and permanently icy snow and everything else. So the Timberland boots, you know, they're there as a function. That became like the staple look as well. So it kept evolving, like it it was never stuck in one thing, you know. And when you know it started out in the late eighties with people wearing tracksuits. Now at this point, it just turned into something totally different. I mean, MC Hammer, he was mocked at the time, but I don't care what anyone says. A lot of people had them baggy pants at the time. Like I don't. <laughs> Hip hop fashion was constantly in conversation with what was happening on the streets. But for those who weren't in the inner cities, it was through other forms of media, in particular through the TV show Yo! MCV Raps, that the constantly evolving looks were being broadcast to suburban teens and European fashion designers alike. Within days, a look worn on the streets of New York could suddenly become a national or even international trend. Exactly, exactly. That's it. You know, when you're looking at album covers or, or magazine articles, the thing is things would resonate longer because things move slower. There wasn't as much information or access to what was going on. You know, there was a filter process in it. Was, it was because the technology at the time, you know, and how, how could you get things? You know, think people were faxing things. The internet didn't exist. Mobile phones didn't exist. You know, you'd get hip-hop connection or you'd get, uh, you'd get the Source magazine. And you'd be flicking through and you'd be looking at the back page, you'd be looking at the photo spreads, etc. You'd be seeing, oh, what are they wearing? What are those? What are these? What you are, but having aspirations. So when we saw rappers wearing Dapper Dan tracksuits with the LV logo blazoned on them or the Gucci logo or the MCM logo emblazoned on them, like your Rakims, like your Eric B's, like your Ultramagnetic MC's, we were, everyone was like going, yo, this is the thing. When you had Schooly D, and you had Schooly D talking about put your feelers on. All these kind of things all added to the emergence of luxury within the zeitgeist, you know, what was going on. Everyone's name-checking these luxury things going, yo, I might not have that money. I'm going to make sure I look money is basically the, the, the tenant that's going on. As much as hip-hop is influenced by designer fashion, fashion has taken much from hip-hop. Without it, Balenciaga's oversized hoodies, Gucci's monograms and gold chains, and designer tracksuits and sneakers wouldn't exist in fashion lexicon like they do today. I think, I think hip-hop is the most inspirational, aspirational, productive art form because it inspires people to step up so-called luxury fashion there's a reason why they copy everything that happens on the street because let's take for example gucci right so with gucci you know they have all of these looks they have these sweaters and everything else you know the minimum price for a gucci item was like well i don't know so let's call it a grand right for a man young man right so whether that's trousers whether it's a sweatshirt or whatever whatever and it's more like it's just a starting price you can't afford that shit. Like, you know, even if even if you can afford it, you can't afford it because you've got other things that are more important in life. So what happens is we wear the street look, we wear the tracksuits, we wear the hooded tops very, very well, we wear the jeans, we'll manipulate the jeans to make them look a certain way. With definitely I can't speak for other genres of music, like, but definitely with hip-hop culture, it's like that make do street aesthetic has inspired 
and influenced the fashion industry in many, many different ways. I'm Tommy Hilfiger, and I'm uh, doing this ID podcast with Osman, and uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Tommy Hilfiger, who was designing preppy Ivy League sportswear with oversized logos in the mid-1980s, began to get noticed by New York's uptown hip-hop crowd. Well, in the mid-80s, I was just starting my brand. I always wanted to connect my brand to pop culture, music, and the music world. But then my brother Andy, who is also a musician, introduced me to the hip-hop world. And what we found was that the hip-hop world had embraced my brand in a really big way, wearing it in a way that was really different than anyone had ever seen because somebody who might be a, a size 30 waist was wearing a pair of jeans and a 36 waist. At a time when fashion brands popular with black artists were refusing to work with them, Hilfiger embraced his own popularity on the scene and started designing with this new customer in mind. Then we met Snoop Dogg, and Snoop Dogg was going on Saturday Night Live, so we gave him some clothes, and he decided to wear one of the logo rugby shirts. And when he did, people went crazy. Then we met Aaliyah. Then we met this young girl who was in a group, and uh, the group was called Destiny's Child. Her name was Beyonce, and we started dressing her and uh, Destiny's Child. We really, that was really the beginning of streetwear. Mm. And I believe that's why Tommy Jeans was created. Well, Tommy Jeans was founded as a result of us wanting to please the customer. And as Russell Simmons told me in the early, early days, he said, the hip hop kids are embracing your, your look because they want to look rich. And... You know, the rich kids who were going to boarding schools and prep schools and Ivy League schools were, were dressing in very preppy clothes. I made preppy with a twist. And in the early 90s, we realized that hip hop and street style was going to be taking over in the prep schools and the colleges and the boarding schools. All of the white kids started to dressed like the hip-hop kids. Increasingly, hip-hop was embracing a preppy take on Americana. Ski jackets, blazers, and even teddy bear sweaters. Because after all, the Ivy League look was the sartorial symbol of the American dream. You have clothing that was associated, again, with wealthy and with leisure class. I mean, I wore a tennis skirt. I had no no idea of where tennis court was around me. Salt and Pepper had riding boots. There were no horses where I'm going to go riding, but those were iconic kind of um, symbols that were also a, a connection to leisure and wealth. It wasn't long before the creators and musicians popularizing this look wanted a bigger slice of the pie. Tommy Hilfiger recalls hip-hop entrepreneurs beginning to take the power back into their own hands. And people like P. Diddy came to me and wanted me to make clothes for his tour. Russell Simmons brought me Run DMC. 
I met Jay-Z at the time who was doing RockAware or just starting RockAware. And then I helped uh, Sean John and uh, Russell Simmons with his Fat Farm collection really get started. By the late 90s, hip-hop artists weren't just releasing music, but clothing lines. For Aisha Durham, this move into the commercial side of the scene was inevitable and long overdue. Hip-hop, after all, has always been about taking a stand for equality and against the oppression faced by black people in America. I would say all uh, rap is political if it's coming from a space of the minoritized and dispossessed. So when we're talking about hip-hop, I want us to always keep in mind the people who produce, consume, and participate in terms of the culture. I mean, uh, Public Enemy and Chuck D famously said that hip-hop is the Black CNN. We're not getting our stories necessarily told on the evening news, but we can hear our own stories um, in our songs. And we see this even in the movement uh, for Black Lives that is now that is a global movement even at the point of talking about systematic oppression and really racial violence. We had these very sanitized stories on the news and it took social media and it took organizing by Black women, queer Black women, I would mark, on Twitter and social media to say, this is actually what is happening in Ferguson. This is actually what's happening in these other areas. So that same idea of hip hop using whatever means it has available to articulate its own experience and not depending on uh, legacy media or mainstream media is still the same kind of thread um, that goes through today. And it's still seen as a threat because of that. We still see ordinances right on the books today about Black people connected to hip-hop should not wear their pants in a certain way. You could get fined. Um, You could uh, go to jail. You should not wear your hair a certain way. Again, those very kind of uh, aesthetics that are associated with um, hip-hop culture are literally uh, uh, being seen as a threat and against the law. So when we're talking about the backlash against hip hop, again, I want to reiterate, we're really talking about the backlash, uh, the continued backlash against black and brown people. And that's the power in terms of hip hop by using whatever means you have available to articulate your own experience. Originally called urban wear, Hip-hop fashion labels had, by the early 2000s, become an entire facet of the fashion industry. By now, they were raking in billions of dollars from sales all over the world. This included brands like Jay-Z's Rockwear, Russell Simmons's Fat Farm and Puff Daddy's Sean John, which paved the way for luxury fashion's current relationship with streetwear. They marketed themselves with a direct association to hip-hop, as opposed to being influenced by the genre. They were, in one word, authentic. Well, that's it. I mean, Russell Simmons is the progenitor of all that. The guy that took it to the next level after him is P. Diddy. P. Diddy took it, right? When he set up, you know, he was always an entrepreneur and he was coming through and he's, he was the one who was lining up brand endorsements. He's the one who's like got Ciroc. He's the one who's doing all this kind of thing. He is the blueprint for that. Uh, he's taking it from that. He's, he launches his Sean John line because he sees what, you know, what Cross Colors doing. He sees what Carl Kanai is doing. He, I want to do that. He sees what Russell Simmons is doing with Fat Farm, right? Taking that whole preppy look. 
I want to do my own one, you know? So Russell Simmons, we've got to give due credit to. Before that, Spike Lee, 40 Acres of Mule, because he did this whole 40 Acres of Mule clothing line, opening up people's eyes to the fact that, yo, we're owed 40 Acres of Mule. Each one of us, former slaves, has owned that, and we still haven't got it, and we're going to fight until we get that. But then it became like, yo, we can fight for our people because I want to show my wealth, and why shouldn't we have what they have? It's in the personal stories of these artists that we see and hear hip-hop's part in the equality and liberation struggle of black people in America. Dapper Dan knows this as well as anyone, having fallen victim to the dominant culture's resistance to his work and the appropriation of his artistry. For him, the story goes deeper. My father always had used clothes, you know? He was a big influence in my life. You got to understand, my father was born in 1898, 33 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. My father's father was born a slave and freed and had my father. So my grandfather was a slave. You follow what I'm saying? So all of this here is adding up and accumulating in my mind the streets, the music, my father's experience. And my father came from the South. My parents come from tiny black town, USA. And they never went back. You know, Emmett Till, the black boy. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, Emmett Till would have been, a, I was, when Emmett Till, that happened to Emmett Till, he was 14. Right? I was 11. And I thought, when I saw that movie, I said, wow, that's why my parents never went back. You know what I'm saying? I'm mm-hmm. glad they came to Harlem. You know? I could have been Emmett Till. Here's Dr. McKees McFerguson on the Deep Wounds hip-hop addresses. I think what drew me to hip-hop was around um, the age of 13 or 14, uh, I lost my father to um, colon cancer. And so uh, my mother would um, often be working, you know, 14-hour shifts, and I was home a lot by myself. And so hip-hop, a lot of times the voices I would hear often became these uh, pseudo-aunts and uncles that I would learn life lessons from uh, that kind of helped me um, make sense of myself and you know, kind of make sense of the situations and um, things that um, I was going through. One of the first music groups I fell in love with and that really influenced me was Outkast. Their willingness to be unapologetically Southern. It was like listening to a family reunion versus just listening to a record. They taught me how to be myself more and accept myself more so the one that stands out for me is called In Due Time. And in the video, Andre 3000, when he's about to rap his verse, he breaks away from a chain gang, right? This legacy of penitentiaries and plantations and and him being able to break away um, and what that looks like and what that feels like as a Black person in the Southern United States. It resonated with me, with me so much because who worked those fields and uh, how oftentimes those people uh, look like me and um, the progress that we've made, but then also the lack of progress that we've made. Dapper Dan is now lauded by the fashion industry as a pioneer. In 2020, he was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. 
In 2018, Gucci sent a copy of one of his jackets down the runway, a faux pas which landed them in trouble at the time, but they've now embraced App, having him front row at their shows and even financially backing the reopening of his boutique in Harlem. Now, Dapper Dan uses Gucci fabrics with their full support. And just this year, he collaborated with sportswear brand Puma on a collection to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. So when Puma wanted to do something with me, so I said, listen, how can Puma and Dapper Dan come together in a way that tells a story about both of us? Let's start with the image. Remember, I'm big on images. So I said, you know what? That little pussycat Puma we have, that has to go. Now, when you look on the garments that I'm creating, you see a ferocious Puma. So when you look at the Puma and you look at the Dapper Dan Puma, you're going to see the ferociousness. It's like I'm leaping out of the ghetto. I'm bringing something. I'm bringing a message. You know? Dap's story, from shoeless kid to fashion icon, demonstrates the tensions of hip-hop's 50-year power struggle. It also exemplifies what's possible. Here's Kishkash on how the subculture has risen up from the streets of New York to every corner of the world. I'd say that hip-hop is... Well, Chuck D said hip-hop is the CNN of the world, right? And that goes in every single way. It's a tutelage. It's a tutelage for anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur and succeed, be it in music, be it in fashion, and how they're linked. I mean, music and fashion have always been linked, but the thing is now people are actually admitting it in the, in the boardrooms. But the power of hip-hop now is the number one music in the world. It's spreading because the thing is everyone finds an identity for it. Myself being an Indian kid, growing up in a predominantly white country, seeing these people talking in a way that appeals to me and going, hey, I, I can relate to this. You know, I can relate to this. And that's the power of it. And it's the relatability of everything. And then if you have that structure in play, then hip hop is a, is, a, is a phenomenal driving force and platform. Hip-hop is going to go where people are going. I think that hip-hop from its very inception has always been inventive and has always been a response to the present um, conditions. Where I see hip-hop now with the likes of one of the highest selling um, rappers, not just female rappers, but rappers, period, Cardi B, um, Megan Thee Stallion being one of the most popular, um, and even Lizzo, even with the body shape and the uh, uh, gender and sexual politics, for me, this is not new. It actually harkens back to the very beginning um, of hip hop where you did have a proliferation and a variety uh, of women. Women, Miss Melody could be like Lizzo or even thinking about um, Roxanne Chante. So where I see hip hop going is always a looking back to talk about the present in order to be inventive looking forward. Fashion follows the music and the music has become mainstream. The music has become dominant within youth culture. Uh, it's black, it's white, it's gay, it's straight. It's, it's, it's just part of the fabric right now and part of the, 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 the world scene. Hip-hop is about expression. i say it again, hip-hop is the voice of the youth. And it's about people putting across their stories, their ideas, their thoughts. Every day there's a new way of saying things. Every day there's a new way of doing things. And I think that that is represented through fashion as well. There's so many different artists and styles. I think we're at a point where artists are encouraged to be 
as expressive as possible creatively. And and when I say encouraged, not by an institution, not by the labels, not by managers. The fans want it. The fans want you to be you. The fans want to see you do well. They want you to be creatively out there. They want you to make events and moments. So whether it's Little Nas X, whether it's Kanye West, whether it's Lizzo, the more creatively expressive you are with your look, I think, the more it resonates. There's no rules. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths, and art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieburn, and Identity is produced by Podmasters for Vice Media.